Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. In this episode, Jack and I discuss the shortfalls in short-term market forecasting. We look at the different types of market predictions people make, why the so-called experts make them, and why investors should take these forecasts with a grain of salt. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Uh, Today, what we're going to talk about is um, forecasting and predictions. And sort of, it's, you know, the beginning of the year, as we came into this year, there was a lot of you know, market calls as to what the market was going to do in 2020 and and also looking back and who got it right and who got it wrong for 2019. And, you know, short-term market forecasting is extremely difficult. And it's something, you know, we try to be as forecast-free as possible here. Um, I mean, we're a bottoms-up sort of quantitative investing shop. We don't really make market calls. Um, but you know, we also think it's important to look at these things and try to understand the limitations of short-term forecasting. So to start, maybe I'll just read this O'Shaughnessy, uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy quote, which is uh, what you had in your article. And so O'Shaughnessy said, and so from our perspective, trying to make a successful for, successful forecast, short-term forecast is virtually impossible because in the short term, there's quite a bit of noise in the marketplace and people make mistake noise for signal and they have a narrative about it and it's very believable but unfortunately often wrong. So we don't make forecasts in terms of what the market's going to do over the short-term periods of time because quite frankly we don't know. And if others were honest they would have to admit that they don't know either. Um, You know I mean most market forecasts are made out of self-interest and so the goal oftentimes is to benefit the forecaster, not really the investor. And so what you did in your article is you kind of came up with, I think, four or five different types of forecasts that, you know, we often hear. The first one is starting with, you know, the calendar year prediction. Um, And you looked at different investment banks, price targets, and so on. So, you know, maybe let's start with that one and just talk about what goes into it and talk about, you know, why this is so difficult to do, and yet, you know, every major Wall Street investment bank and a lot of other people still decide to do it. Yeah, like you said, everybody wants to make short-term predictions in the market, and, and most of that is for their own benefit and for, for marketing purposes and things like that. But investors can sometimes be trapped by that because sometimes they can see these predictions and they can want to act on them. They can want to change their portfolio, and that can be very dangerous. So I want, what I wanted to highlight with the article is the types of predictions you should look out for and, and beware of. and. And also, I wanted to get across an understanding that most of the things people are predicting about the market, unless they're predicting them over 20-plus year horizons, most of those things are not actually predictable. So they don't actually know the thing that they're predicting. And, and like you said, the first one I came up with was the calendar year projection. And we just saw those. You know, we're, we're recording this in late January. We just saw everyone come out with their year-end S&P 500 forecast for 2020. And if you look back to 2019, and you look at all the major banks and all of their year-end forecasts, the highest one was 3,100 on the S&P, and the S&P closed the year at 3,221. So so none of them were even close. And I don't blame the people making the forecast. It's part of their job. It's something they have to do. 
but it's just important to understand that these forecasts, you know, are more entertainment than they are valuable. And, and also what, what you'll notice with the forecasts is the market produces, you know, around a 10% return long term. All of these forecasts will be somewhat close to that. Because from a careerist perspective, it doesn't make sense for an analyst at a major bank to predict, you know, a 30% increase or a 30% decrease in the market. Because if they're wrong, they're going to probably lose their job. Right. So most of these are between, say, 0 and 12% every year. And, and they're good for entertainment purposes. And they're good for – you can read the details behind them to understand what's going on with the market. But they should just play no role in, in how you're building your investment portfolio. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of times what these guys do do as well – and this is also hard, but at least – a lot of them have a methodology behind it where they try to look at, you know, the earnings of the S&P 500 companies and then try to assign a multiple on it. And so, you know, those are two variables that are very hard to predict. I mean, you know, if you go into a recession, you know, earnings are going to take a hit. And so that's hard to predict. If maybe earnings come in above where you think they are, that's also, you know, very difficult to predict because we know analysts aren't good with projecting earnings. And then, you know, you have to try to assess the what the the multiple or how much the market will value those earnings and you know that's more of a um sort of a psychological thing that you're trying to understand the psyche of investors at that point in time to say you know how much investors are going to value you know the earnings of those underlying companies whether it's a 15 multiple a 20 multiple or maybe even like a 25 multiple yeah, and you, and you make an important point because even if I gave you all the relevant economic data, even if I told you this year, here's what the Fed's going to do, here's what interest rates are going to do, here's what GDP growth is going to be, here's what S&P earnings are going to be, even if I gave you all that, you still wouldn't come up with an accurate forecast for what the S&P 500 is going to do. And so that just shows how hard it is. Even if you predict the underlying variables, you can't predict how people are going to react to the underlying variables. And you can't predict what expectations about the future will be. So even with that information, you still can't make an accurate forecast. So I, th I think the most important point is, you know, these one-year forecasts for the S&P 500 are not of much value to anybody. Okay. Um, the next one was the doom and gloom forecast, which we know that these, you know, these a lot of times come out after the market has you know, taking a big hit. So at the end of, you know, 2018, when the market was basically down 20% going into late, late December, you know, you had the doom and gloom guys, which it's basically the same, you know, handful of guys coming out and saying, you know, there's a bear market, the market's going to fall by 50%, blah, 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 whatever it is. And, you know, they'll be right once every 10 years or so. And that's where they get all the publicity and all the, um, uh, exposure, but you know, I think the doom and gloom forecasts, you know, and they'll always be here, by the way, because it's playing off of people's emotions and fear. Um, but do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, you know, since since 2009, there have been people ever. There have been some people that's cons consistently since 2009 have been calling for a bear market every single year, and we've had a massive, you know, one of the longest bull market runs in history. And you know, this this is a playbook they're they're following, and the the playbook is if you continue to call for this market correction over and over and over again, eventually the market correction will come or the bear market will come and you'll be able to say that I called the bear market. And people will forget about the fact that you've been calling the bear market the entire time all the way up. And to do this type of forecast properly, you have to be somewhat close to the top when you call this. You can't be calling it for five, 10 years before it actually happens. And you also have to be willing to 
let go of your bearish views at the bottom. And so th there's very few people that can actually do this correctly. But you see these things all the time, and it, and it makes investors panic. It makes investors want to sell. You know, you think valuations are really high, or you know, earnings growth is declining, or or whatever it is. You know, the the, the deficit is so large, or Fed policy is going to destroy the market. There's all these reasons for it. But the, these types of forecasts are. are almost always not useful in any way because no one can get the timing right on these. And if you can't get the timing right, they don't have any value. Well, that's exactly right. Like, how do you, you know, you see a guy calling for, you know, a 50% decline in the market or the next bear market, you know, it's like, how do you implement that in your investment approach? What do you do? Do you go to cash? Do you go to, you know, start buying gold? Do you, you know, so I think like the actual implementation of it, and not only is it pretty bad advice, but, you know, how, how is an investor supposed to impl implement that, you know, in their own portfolio is a whole nother question. I think you had written an article on those binary market signals, which is, you know, either being in or out of the market based on some indicator and, or factor. And, you know, that's typically not how you want to be, you know, managing your long-term investments in terms of these, you know, big sort of moves in and out of the market, which if you were to listen to these guys, that's what you'd be doing in a lot of the cases, I think. Yeah, that's right. I mean, actually following this advice, you know, first of all, it's terrible advice, but second of all, how to actually implement it in your portfolio is very challenging. You know, and another point here is because we probably will at some point here, and I'm not going to time this in any way, but at some point here, you know, in the next five years, the next decade, we're going to get a bear market and somebody's going to get that bear market perfectly right. Somebody who hasn't been calling for the bear market the whole time is going to get the top right. But it's important to understand you don't even want to listen to those types of people because to, to get this right, you have to be able to do this across multiple bear markets, across mar multiple market cycles. And a lot of the guys that you saw get the bear market right in 2000 couldn't do it again in 2008. Or a lot of the guys that got it right in 2008 have had all kinds of problems since then. Well, and so go ahead. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that, that's, yeah, exactly. I mean, you, there's two decisions, right? There's the decision to call it right and then the decision to get back in. And those two things, you know, you got to be almost right on both sides to some extent to, to get the benefit. You can't have been right in 09 and then stayed out of the market till like 2017 and, and stayed negative. So, you know, that's what a lot of these guys are. They're, they're kind of perma bears. They're constantly negative. They're, you know, constantly calling for bear markets. So that's really not, those aren't the types of people that I think you want to be listening to for sure. Um, the next one was, um, the crazy prediction. So, you know, somebody that's not going to make the call of, you know, that 10% a year, but that's going to go way out on the limb and make that crazy prediction. That's what you're trying to get at with that, right? Yeah. It's the opposite of the, the analysts at the major banks. So the, the analysts, at the major banks have an incentive to, you know, make a prediction that's pretty close to normal, but somebody who's lesser known has an incentive to try to make a prediction that's completely crazy because if, if it works out, they're going to be a hero. If it doesn't work out, everybody's going to forget it even happened. And so predicting things like, you know, this, you saw some of this with Bitcoin. When, when Bitcoin was up at 20,000, you saw these 50,000 and $100,000 price targets over really short periods of time. And, and these were just people trying to make a name for themselves because there's no way you can predict when Bitcoin's at 20,000 that, you know, in the next six months, it's going to go to 50,000. That, that's just, it's just a completely unpredictable thing. But if, if a person who predicted that was right, you know, they, they would grow their business substantially probably off of that prediction. And if they're wrong, you know, people tend to forget with, with the passage of time that they made the prediction. So right. it, I just want, with this one, I just wanted people to understand that there is this incentive to make, you know, these crazy predictions because the, the cost benefit is in your favor um, for the predictor. It's, it's, it's obviously against you as the person listening to the prediction, but it, the cost benefit is in the, favor, is in the favor of the predictor when you make those mm -hmm. kind of predictions. Mm -hmm. 
And the um, sort of tying back to the Wall Street analyst one where these guys are, you know, mostly in that, let's say that 10 to 12, maybe 15 percent range. You know, a lot of these guys are really just playing the average. So that was your next one, which is, you know, sort of I have no idea where the market's going to go, but I'm just going to play like what the average long term return is, let's say 10 percent a year. Um, yeah, know, what's, but, what's what's interesting about that, though, is if, if you look at the actual distribution of returns of the market, the market return is rarely actually 10 percent. So you could say it's a fair strategy to try to predict a 10% return in the market if you want to predict it based on the average. But if you looked at the distributions of returns, it's a very small minority of the returns fall in that 8 to 12% category. Right. Most of them are, are either much higher or much lower. So if you predict the market's going to return 10% over the next 20 years, you're likely going to be right. If you predict it's going to return 10% over the next year, you're more than likely going to be wrong. Yeah, so I think the actual numbers behind that, if the market has a 10% um, nominal long-term return, I believe the standard deviation is 14%. So that means 68% of the time around the mean, the market could be up 24% or down by 4% because the mean is the 10%. So you can go plus or minus 14%. You're going to be within that first standard deviation 68% of the time. So, you know, that's just what the long-term numbers show. And it just goes to your point. There is, there's tons of variability um, around that average. Um, so the next one was sort of the probability one, which is heads I win, tails I also win. Yeah, you don't see this one as much, but I, it's an interesting way to, to make a prediction in, in such a way that you're going you're gonna to win no matter what happens. And so to give you an example, if I predict there's a 40% chance of a bear market next year, well, the, the historical odds of a bear market are much lower than that. I don't know what they are, 15 20% or something like that. Mm -hmm. So if there is a bear market, I can say, all right, I predicted there were above average odds of a bear market next year. But I also predicted a number that was less than 50%. So if there's not a bear market next year, I can say, well, I, pred I predicted you know, a less than 50% chance of a bear market. So there's a, there's a way for me to spin that prediction in such a way that I win no matter what happens. And, and you'll see these kind of predictions sometimes where people are setting themselves up to declare victory no matter what happens in the market. And you just have to be, be wary of those because somebody telling you there's a 40% chance of something happening is not really telling you anything. They're more just setting themselves up to be able to you know, say they were right either way. Right. I think, you know, in investing in the stock market, there will always be people making predictions, whether it's on the overall market, the economy, individual companies, and just the, there's, you know, a lot of danger and all that, but that's the reality of the business we live in. Um, what is interesting is Philip Tetlock wrote a book called Super Forecasters, and in it, he studied really those people that were much more successful at forecasting. And I think the key ability that they had was to be able to change their minds when the facts changed and be able to look at something and not be so grounded to their opinion um, that they weren't willing to change their ideas or their beliefs or their forecasts when, you know, it called for that. And so I think, you know, if you're going to listen to some people out there, and there are some people that I really do gravitate to because I think they've been much more right than wrong. But I've also seen them be able to sort of change their opinion when the what you know when the data and the facts change. And so I don't know if you have any sort of concluding thoughts on that idea, but I'm interested in hearing what you think about that. Yeah, you know, all of this is one of the re one of the many reasons that we're quantitative investors. And so all of these predictions, you know, that there's self interest involved in them. Your emotions and your biases are playing a role. You know, there's so many things that 
you know, you're trying to predict what's unpredictable. There's so many things that are that are making this process of predicting the future really, really difficult. And it's one of the advantages of a quantitative system is you don't even have to play this game. You know, you, you can just invest for the long term based on the odds, trying to stack the odds in your favor, and you don't have to worry about what the market's going to do next year. You don't have to worry about who's predicting the next bear market. You know, you have your system and you can follow it for the long term. So I think this is one of the one of the many reasons why a quantitative system can make sense for a lot of people. Great. Okay. I think that's a great um, way to wrap this up. Um, so we'll put links to Jack's article and the other references in the show notes. Thank you guys very much for um, watching us. We hope you found this um, discussion interesting and valuable. Thank you. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.